Hosea 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will hear their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer, and I look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. So we're on to joy. Hope, peace, love, and joy. Four candles of Advent, four candles of expectation, four candles of promise, of kingdom foretaste, and as we experience it now, of already but not yet reality. Hope, peace, love, and joy. Today we lit the fourth candle of joy. I've been thinking about Advent joy. What is it that brings joy to you? Uh, for me, seeing kids wiggle around the sanctuary is joyful. Um, seeing new members is joyful. Um, writing down things I'm grateful for often makes me joyful. Um, one time I ate a gluten-free croissant. That was a pretty good day. Joy has been described as a combination of happiness and gratitude. Um, but it seems to me there's something more to it than that. Because God also commands us to be joyful in spite of our circumstances. Did you know that God can rightly command us to be joyful, to celebrate? Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. This is because for the Christian, joy isn't simply feeling really happy. There seems to be something about joy, this call to joy in the Christian life, that involves our agency. It involves a response from us. And I was thinking about this. Nowhere is this tension better felt, this call to joy, nowhere is it better exemplified than in a Christian funeral. Um, in a funeral, we are called to celebrate the reality of resurrection. Do we feel joy? Not often, not immediately. It's usually a sober-minded time with mourning, but also scattered with seeds of hope. During a funeral, we have what is an objective celebration of something that's true, the resurrection, where our emotions just have to catch up as best as they can. We get reminded that there's a bigger story. 
We do funerals because the resurrection is real. And we need to remember our basis for hope. Without the funeral, the circumstances and emotions of loss and grief crowd our hearts. But God's presence is a healing presence. And the point of the funeral, as one preacher put it, is to recover the capacity to place the experience of death into the fabric of an overarching story of God's care for us. To remember that God is God. God is good. God is in control. And God is with us. In this way, God can command us to celebrate because objectively, he does love us. He does care for us. And though we may not feel joy or gratitude, there is a reason to hope. I think hope is the motor of this thing we call joy. It's the thing that pulls us to joy. Now, why am I talking about funerals during this festive time of year, this time of joy? Come on, preacher, what are you doing? In a way, Hosea 14 is a funeral sermon. I'll say that again. In a way, Hosea 14 is a funeral sermon, a funeral sermon which objectively looks forward to the hope to the coming of God onto the scene. Now, what do I mean? Our passage this morning, chapter 14, a passage full of hope, our passage is immediately preceded in chapter 13, verse 16, with three images of certain death. This is what it reads. The people of Samaria must bear their guilt because they have rebelled against their God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed to the ground. Their pregnant women ripped open. Like, oh my gosh, what did we just read? What preceded this passage full of hope? Hosea foresees this brutal three-year siege of northern Israel by Assyria, where the northern kingdom Israel, Samaria, Ephraim, indeed falls. Even the vulnerable will fall by the sword. Pregnant women and little ones. <sighs> Childlessness here is the end of those whose hearts have gone after the god of the fertility cults. And it's not even a question here. There's no sense of a contingency plan. Israel will fall. Historically speaking, we realize that this siege on northern Israel uh, happened. And, and Israel, the north of Israel, is irreversibly scattered. It's a funeral sermon, a prophetic funeral sermon for a death that hasn't happened yet. Where is the joy and hope in that? You know, I think that like a funeral service, um, this passage is a recognition of the angst of a life that was led. Um, the angst of the life that was led, full of striving, seeking security, orphaned and made weak in this search for life. The two main sins of the tribe of Ephraim are mentioned here in verse 3. So Israel can, or Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you the fatherless find compassion. Assyria cannot save. This refers to alliances being sought uh, with a nation that would be their ruin. We will never again say our gods. This refers to idols made of Assyrian deities, especially those relating to the fertility cult of Baal worship. Maybe it seems perfectly reasonable amidst the threat of war to seek alliances with foreign national powers. 
Maybe it even seems wise to trust in kings who sit in positions to do something about the circumstances of our lives. Maybe, so we don't offend our neighbors, we should pay homage to the things they pay homage to, like the fertility rituals and household gods. You know, in life as we live it, on a day-to-day -day basis, maybe living up to the expectations of our peers at school may feel like the most important thing in the world. Maybe having a secure job may feel like it will make everything else in life fall into place. But in Scripture, we see again and again that alliances can't save us. The economy doesn't save us. People can't save us. God wants our hearts. He wants our faithfulness. He wants us to live into covenant with us. God resists the proud because pride stands in resistance to God. And what he wants is he wants us to live in the vine. He wants us to be bearing his fruit. Finally, we get to the passage where this tree makes sense. This tree is the image of who God is, who God promises to be. All of the so-called work of Ephraim's hand, it's laid bare because, like the sins of Gomer, Ephraim broke covenant with God by trusting in foreign powers, worshiping other gods. These sins lay the foundation of her downfall. Um, it wasn't the perceived threats that Ephraim had been spending all his time working to quell uh, that resulted in her downfall. It was her idolatry. And so we have in our passage a call to repent, to confess, to return. Um, God says this in verse 4. Um, he says, I'll heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. This call to repent, confess, return. God says, I will be like the dew to Israel. I mean, this is such a beautiful image. Um, it really captures the reality of, of dependence on God. Um, one preacher said of, of the dew of, uh, in Israel and Palestine, the dew will at rare times be so heavy that it would provide enough moisture for growth, which is to say, sorry about that, in the most unlikely place and time, God's love, blessing, and power can take root and flourish in the most unlikely place and time. So even in the absence of rain, moisture from the Mediterranean and other sources evaporates into the air, and, the, and in the coldness of night, that water settles on the ground. I think the one thing we can affirm, especially at this time of year, is that the first advent, like the dew, um, God's love, blessing, and power came in the most unlikely place and time. Incarnate creator among his creation, giver of life, came down in human form. It's like dew to Israel. Um, in verse 5, God says this. He says, I'll be like a cedar of Lebanon, like a tree, a great big tree. He'll send his roots down his roots. His young shoots will grow. A big, wide, thickly rooted tree is an image of security, of stability, where deep roots are anchors. Um, God effectively says, I am the security you've been looking for. His splendor will be like an olive tree, his fragrance like the cedar of Lebanon. Hosea says of God in verse 7, People will dwell again in his shade. They will flourish like the grain. They will blossom like the vine. Israel's fame will be like the, wa the wine in Lebanon. The promise in Scripture is that a time is coming where God will provide the prosperity and security for his people that we will create the conditions for objective joy. A time is coming. A time is coming where our circumstances our affections, even our agency will turn us to joy. 
The hope of the Christian faith attests to a joyful future. I mean, what better picture do we have of joy than the banquet at the wedding of the Lamb? That's a together kind of joy. That's not a seven steps to happiness, egoist, self-focused kind of joy. It's not a private inner bliss. That's a together kind of joy. That's a, the joy that comes from a gratitude of living remembrance, recognizing that life flourishes because it is life in God. The tree is the final image that we're left with in verse 8. It's the final image in the book of Hosea of God as a flourishing tree. Here's what it says, Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? I will answer him and care for him. I am like a flourishing juniper. Your fruitfulness comes from me. Let us not forget that our fruitfulness comes from this flourishing fir tree. Let's not forget what Jesus said. He said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, in, in reflecting on this passage, I think we have to start with the sad recognition that as a nation, northern Israel did not return to God and repent. If there's rejoicing in the presence of angels, uh, in the angels of God over one sinner who repents, you know, there's sadness for those who don't turn to God. The Assyrians were brutal. And the resulting diaspora of the nation was arguably never restored. I mean, that's just hard. I mean, how can we bring our own experience uh, to the table here? Because I feel like I can relate to this. Um, people I know that don't know God, who don't know the gifts of salvation. That's just hard. I've said this earlier, that while we do sin, <laughs> it's not our eternal identities to, to live as Gomer. Our primary identity is redeemed in Christ. As the church, as the hands and feet of Christ, we're invited to become like Hosea, choosing sacrificial love and bringing people to the source of our joy, which is to say we can become evangelists uh, to the lost and the wayward, which is to say we can act with the same compassion that says, how can I give up on you, O Ephraim? That's an aside. Um, I think after starting from the sadness of this passage, we can move to seeing God's redemptive purpose, uh, not just for the nation of Israel, but for everyone who believes. This passage reminds God's people to put their hope in God alone. Our prosperity and our security are rooted in God's love and God's forgiveness in Christ. They don't come through superiority, status, power politics. They don't come through the trappings of success, the new car, the symbols of upward mobility, connections and names. Our prosperity and our security are rooted in God's work in Christ. Um, with our gaze fixed on Christ, we see how this funeral dirge actually turns into a love song. Um, the sure hope of the Christian is that beyond this short life, we will be with God. We'll be wrapped in God's goodness. The chaos of sin's family tree will be cut down to its root. And joy 
stems from the recognition and gratitude that the seeds of God's eternal tree will shade us. They'll support us. Those seeds have been planted in Christ. Christ, the face of God, and yet born a child. Christ, whose paradoxical kingdom laughs at the folly of human power, ephemeral and flimsy like a tower of cards, and instead it teaches the enduring power of love and self-sacrifice. Christ, who flourished by dying, a seed dead and buried, yet in God's plan was uh, planted to rise to resurrection life. People of God, don't you see, God's love was so deep for Israel that he couldn't, wouldn't, and didn't abandon her. But his plan all along was bigger than Israel. Jesus, like a mother hen, was sent to gather up all who would come under his wing, and in his death secured our way to God. Love and forgiveness are our basis for security. Love and forgiveness are our, our basis for prosperity. It's not our striving, it's not our toiling, it's not our scheming, not our covenant-breaking concessions with the gods of this world. God's is an economy of love and forgiveness, and that is our basis for joy. Why can we say, sing joy to the world? Because hope has come. Hope for a broken family. Why can we say joy to the world? Because peace has been wrought out of rebellion. Why can we say joy to the world? Because we have been loved in the midst of betrayal. We say joy not because our emotions get there, and it's really important as a counselor that I say that for so many of us that struggle to feel joy. We say joy not because our temporal circumstances got us there, we say joy because nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We say joy because those who trust in God will not be put to shame. We say joy because we lean into the objective reality to which is our hope. That seed which was planted in Christ Jesus, growing into a tree which will be mature when he returns that's wide enough for us all to dwell in his shade, whose roots secure us in a world where it's safe to love and forgive, where there's no need to map out our own road to financial, relational, emotional security, where we can truly live the good life because we are rooted and grounded in love, which is God. Don't you just long for God's kingdom to break in? Don't you just long to sit at God's table I think this time of year we can get so distracted um, by flashy new stuff. Our culture fabricates and it commercializes such a fleeting, shallow joy that we can't help but get a little disillusioned by it all. The truth is, our joy is rooted in hope, which is rooted in Christ's work and Christ's promise to return, which is rooted in God's sacrificial love and God's story of redemption. It's the sort of love that pursues an unfaithful spouse amidst betrayal. It's the sort of love that pursued me and you, every one of us. It's the sort of love that leads us to a recognition of our own unfaithfulness, our own quickness to trust in foreign powers and false gods. It's the sort of love that shows us our need to examine our hearts and find repentance. Church, did you know that it's for sin that Christ was born in this world? 
It's for sin that Christ was born. My sin, your sin, our sin. This is the paradoxical joy of Christmas. Joy is that God answered us in our need. Joy is that God's tree, this metaphor of the second advent, is even closer to maturity now than when I started this sermon. I'll say that again. Joy is that God's tree, this metaphor for the second advent, is even closer now to maturity than when I started this sermon. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this story of your love. Um, I thank you that you do not give up on your people. I thank you that we have a basis for hope in you. Um, I pray for all of us today that are uh, feeling disillusioned this time of year by the, the shallow hope that, or the shallow joy that, that our culture is trying to promote. I, I pray that we would turn to you um, and remember the story that we're in. Um, we thank you for, for your work in this season. We thank you that, like Hosea, you pursue us. Um, and I thank you that you make us into your church um, so that we can go and, and find the people of this world that need to know your hope and your joy. We thank you so much for all this in Christ's name. Amen.